This is Field Notes in Philanthropy. I'm Matthew Downey. I'm Tori Martin. So we recently got to do our first live recording at a conference. Absolutely. We went to the annual conference of the Emerging Practitioners in Philanthropy, EPIP, over in Detroit, Michigan, which is not too far away from where we're recording today. And you went to the conference, right? How was, uh, how was the experience? I did. You know, it was really great. They actually uh, took a very deliberate approach towards developing new and unusual conference breakout session formats. So rather than just having kind of the typical one person with a PowerPoint or four people doing a panel and having a crowd listening to them, they really were looking for opportunities to have more interactive space, to kind of reshape rooms, to bring the audience more into particular topics. And out of that actually came this really great opportunity to record a live podcast. So shout out to EPIP. Thank you guys for taking a chance Mm -hmm. on us. We're really excited. The topic for the podcast that we recorded was based on the theme of the conference. And so the theme of the conference was the road ahead leadership in uncertain times. And so to determine our podcast topic, we turned to the Threads report that was published a couple of years ago by the independent sector, where the independent sector held these meetings in about 15 cities across the country and about 2000 people maybe um, attended and participated in these conversations. And they really map out the threats that are facing the philanthropy and nonprofit sector in great detail. And I if you haven't read this report, it's downloadable on their website, I highly encourage people who work in the nonprofit and philanthropy sector to read it and become familiar with the issues as the sector is talking about it. You know, I one of the things that I took away after reading it was that I felt like for the first time that small nonprofits get a voice into really talking about the challenges they experience raising money and 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 interacting with the institutions of philanthropy. And we had two really amazing guests to join us. We had Janine Couch from the Grand Rapids Community Foundation and Bridget Clark Whitney of Kids Food Basket, which is, is not a very old nonprofit in the area. It's only about 15, 16 years old. Bridget's been with them the whole time. And they really kind of have a uh, tip-to-toes experience with this sort of work in that they started as a very small nonprofit and now are extremely well-established and, and have a large community involvement here in Grand Rapids. So it was really wonderful to sit down with the two of them and kind of get their joint perspectives on this relationship between funders and fundees. Now, the environment that we recorded in wasn't perfect, right? No, we had a uh, we had some next door neighbors who were also having a very boisterous and exciting session. Uh, so shout out, awesome EPIP, um, not as awesome perhaps for your sound quality. So we do appreciate everyone hanging in there with us. This was uh, a new experiment for us. So turning to the Threads Report, the way we started off the, the session was we really wanted to focus on this grant maker, grant seeker relationship. And um, the Threads report really articulates some of that challenge as being like a major threat that the nonprofit sector really needs to wrestle with. And so we took two very short sections of the Threads report and read them to the audience and to our interviewees before we asked them the first question. And so we're going to read that now so that uh, our listeners can know the premise that we set up the session with. So the first part here, uh, speaking to this grant maker grant seeker relationships, and it's talking about funding structures incentivize counterproductive practice. It says participants of the Threads report felt that current funding models perpetuate practices that have a negative impact on organizations and the sector's ability to achieve their goals. These practices include risk aversion, fear of failure, relationships among organizations defined by competition for funds rather than collaboration, demand for quick tangible results leading to short-sightedness on issues where long-term approaches are necessary, support for new fads at the expense of ongoing successful work, and mission creep as an outgrowth of chasing after funder interests. Part C under the same thread talks about a similar issue. 
The imbalanced power dynamic between foundations and grant seekers often results in nonprofits reacting to foundation preferences and priorities rather than foundations responding to grant seekers. Nonprofits report that the process of securing funds wastes staff and volunteer time, too often devalues the expertise of organizations, and requires grantees acquiesce to foundation demands at the expense of being responsive to stakeholder experiences. Nonprofits perceive some funders as, quote, overly directive and simultaneously unable to relate to the target communities, a combination that leads to resentment of funders. In addition, there is frustration when foundations, in the words of one participant, quote, force nonprofits to engage in unproductive exercise to measure outcomes that the funders deem important, even when the nonprofit believes that measurement of its impact should be differently focused. In general, Threads participants reported a, quote, lack of trust and communication among the parties. There were calls to increase communications between the parties outside of particular funding opportunities to help mitigate some of these issues. So with that, we turned to Janine Couch from the Grand Rapids Community Foundation to respond to those statements. Let's have a listen. So much in that. So I'll try to unpack it just a little bit in maybe three points. One being, if you are a funder and this is how you learned of this relationship, I think that's kind of sad. So I think that as funders, we have to be realistic about the power dynamic that exists in our roles, but I also think we have to be intentional about acknowledging that. So I think it's sad that um, as I was reading the report, I'm like, man, well, they just kind of beat up on us a little bit um, as funders, but the, the reality of it is I did and am aware of some of that being the perception of the relationship between grant seeker and grantee. I think that it's a, little bit of a misunderstanding though of intent versus impact so i don't think that the intent is for these two sectors to be versus each other i think that it paints a picture of us being either or instead of being in tandem with and being both and so i think there are shared values that aren't really being uh, shared or really kind of sharing the narrative of how both sectors align and really should be built on a framework and a platform of us having those shared values. So if you're a nonprofit leader, you likely want to lift and raise resident voice. You want to, in the end, have us all be liberated. As a funder, that is absolutely my goal too. So there should be some um, connection or relationship there that I think um, should really be highlighted and, and lifted up. And then I think one of the biggest reflections for me has been only in philanthropy, I've been here two and a half years, and only in philanthropy are you still new at two and a half years. So this, this like, if I were two and a half years into HR, I'd be an expert by now. But in philanthropy, it's like, oh, no, 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 you haven't been doing this long enough. You need about five years or more to be a veteran. Like, I, I have experience, I think, that I've solved problems outside of the sector that I can apply to this sector. So I think that's really important to lift up to. That is such an interesting point because I also come from really large nonprofits in my background and I keep being asked how many years I've been in philanthropy and I have no idea what to tell people. Yeah. I'm like, And someone told me that I wasn't allowed to use partial years, I had to give whole round numbers. And I was like, but I have been, uh, I don't know. Okay, so agreed, like lots to lots to unpack with all of that. Um, there's probably 12 different issues within those two, those two points and those two threads that can be talked about. I think um, personally, 
where I am now on, on this journey, 16 years in, is very different than I was 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, you know, we had a budget of, of under $500,000, a staff of two, maybe three, um, and, and a real huge need that we were trying to communicate out to funders and were experiencing a lot of the complications that are addressed in, in this threads report. Now that we're 16 years in, we have a lot of trust and credibility in the community. And because of that trust and credibility, we don't face some of these issues as much anymore, right? And so what that says to me is that trust is so key and that relationship is so key. And I think sometimes too, that, that in our small undercapitalized, I mean, this is a sector that's undercapitalized, right? Let's just name it. Um, especially the nonprofits who are grassroots who are trying to address some sort of systemic issue in a community are traditionally undercapitalized. And so I think that, you know, it, we're, as nonprofit leaders, trying to address this issue and trying to seek out funding to be able to address it and feeling in the middle and feeling pulled both ways. But ultimately, the more that we can get to know the funder and they can get to know us, the more that trust is created, the more their share, your shared values are understood and, and what the funder is looking for, what their giving priorities are, we can figure out how to better best match those up. But then beyond that too, is that this has to be a role that, or this has to be a, a, a responsibility that's taken on by the entire team at the nonprofit organization and a shared understanding within the funder team as well. It can't just be one person all the time. It can't just be the ED, it can't be the CEO, or it can't just be the development director. Like it has to be a, a shared perspective and creating those relationships with the funders have to be shared. So one of the things that Bridget and I were talking about when we were preparing is you know, what comes out to me also is the lack of authentic relationship that exists between the sectors. So, you know, relationships, we throw the, the word around very easily and it's okay to say, you know, your friends on Facebook and that's the world we live in, but you work at relationships, right? So you work at building a relationship with whoever, your, your pet, your partner, your spouse, whatever it is, your boss, you know, you go to lunch, you go to coffee, you go to the movies, or you sit and have FaceTime, that relationship has to be built. And I think we don't want to work for the relationship so we see the work for the money or the grants or the support as something that is really the framework and foundation when really I think it's the lack of relationship and we use a money first model. So when I contact you, I want money instead of when I contact you, I want a relationship. So of course, the uh, title of this session is Let's Not Get Coffee. So the, there's this whole question here too, and Matthew and I have talked about this extensively, and, and you guys are much more uh, the experts on this than I would be, but at the same time, that relationship building takes so much time. And like Bridget, you said that this cannot be one person in charge of all of this relationship building for a number of reasons. I mean, what happens if your ED leaves and suddenly there is no relationship between the nonprofit and the grant maker? Um, as well as that one person simply cannot be in all of these places at once. And as a result, though, of this continuous downward pressure on individual people to stand up and be the great man heroes of these um, potential revolutions or movements, we're getting so much burnout in nonprofit leaders. So what do we do about that? I mean, there's a real tension between we need to build relationships and, but I have work to do. I don't have time to get coffee with you or, you know, attend a lunch quarterly until you finally give me a grant. I gotta keep moving. I got work to do and communities to serve. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. Yeah. That's why you pointed me. I think we, we we drove down a couple hours ago, and we talked about this half the way. Um, so 
I think that one of the issues is the pipeline for people who are in the development space, right? So not even just necessarily people who are in executive leadership, but in the development space. And oftentimes we have funders who, if, if I don't show up for a meeting, or if I'm not the one who reaches out and has coffee, or if I'm not the one that delivers the impact report, they feel offended, right, if it's not me. And, and, and so I have been super intentional over the past several years to bring people along with me all the time. And so they can create more and more relationships. And so understanding from a funder point of view too that, that the ED of the CEO or executive leadership has a variety of things that they're doing and that there are really phenomenal people within the organization that are working on, uh, working on developing those relationships. But beyond that, the other side of this is that oftentimes EDs will come right out and say, I don't like to fundraise, right? Like, I don't want to be a fundraiser or, you know, that's just not where my skill set is. You know, if you're working in it, if you are committing your role and committing yourself to a nonprofit organization, that is your number one, number one job is mission, right? And, and, and the second is the resources to meet that. And so that's, that's a frustrating point of view too that I hear oftentimes. And so then, then, then what happens is you have burnout on the development director side because then everything falls on the development director and they're in charge of raising, you know, $4 million budget all on their own without a culture of philanthropy coming down from the ED. So that, that to me is where I've seen the most success in um, avoiding burnout with the development team and with executive leadership is by creating a culture of fundraising that every it's everybody's job, right? And those relationships with funders is also everybody's job. That's so interesting. I, I, um, I think that, um, so you talked about how this seemed really negative towards the funders and, and the, the nonprofits, and, and I think just to sort of put some issues back on the nonprofits, um, as somebody who's been in that world uh, my whole career, I think at some point as organizations, like we have to evolve, and and it's it, we can no longer be you know use we're grassroots where we're we don't have very much money as an excuse for um, mismanaging relationships or or not doing due diligence on, on on our funding relationships, and I think that's that's important, um, and. Um, I wonder um, how, so, but I think at the same time, I think the funders, um, so I think the nonprofits lack some understanding as to really what the funder world is all about. Like, it's all very mysterious in their minds. Like, they, they don't really, and the fun, and, and, and foundations kind of, in, in some ways, like, perpetuate that. And so there's a lot of confusion that, that grantees have about what grant making is and, and, and what the culture of a foundation is. And um, at the same time, I think that um, there is what I would characterize, and I, you know, it's just just from, just from my perspective, maybe an, an assumption made in the funders that they understand nonprofits more than they actually do. Uh, that the relationship between a board and a CEO is fundamentally complicated, and um, and plays out differently in so many organizations. And I think there's can be some assumptions made on the funders' part that are accurate that I've seen as a capacity building role that I'm in. So, Ginny, you've been in, in both sides of this, and I just wonder how you react to that. So, I think that is such a great um, just point of view and perspective. And I am going to say that one of the things that I said earlier, which is intent versus impact. I think that. Um, there's a perception that, you know, I just want you to fill out a final report because it's a requirement. Well, no, I, I want to learn with you. Like, I want to know those stories from a successful grant so that we can learn alongside you or so that, you know, we have accountability measures and so many other filters. You know, your program officer is not the first I mean, it's the first stop, maybe, but it's not the last. There are filters at a community foundation. You might have a community um, grants committee. You have a whole board of trustees. You have an entire community to be accountable to. So while I think there's um, 
some impact there that might be felt in a negative way. It is certainly not the intent of a grant maker to say, I want to make you jump through all these hoops because we kind of have hoops to jump through too. But I think there's a misperception of that. Um, And I think it it seems really easy to say, we have money and all of the causes are great causes. Let's give them all money. But um, depending on your foundation, you know, the request will always outweigh the number of resources or the amount of resources that you have. So it's not a dislike of a program or a dis investment of a program or a personal dislike of a person or an ED, it is truly difficult to um, give an analysis of yes or no. That it it sounds fun, like I want to give you a check and you a check and you a check, but it it is harder than, you know, than that. And so I think it, it really does speak to just a misunderstanding of intent versus impact for both nonprofits and um, foundations in that way and another thing that I kind of wanted to think about and, and really discuss when you talked about like what do we do to address the pipeline I think there's some acknowledgement in the foundation maybe world or sector again with my like veteran status of two and a half years um, that there is a power dynamic right like there is a power dynamic and I would like for lots of funders to say that with me there is a power dynamic right so it's almost therapeutic so I think one of the things that we can do is acknowledge that So acknowledge that when we expect allies to come to the table for people of color, we want them to acknowledge the areas that they have privilege in. So we should have that same expectation of foundations to acknowledge the areas that we have power or that we have privilege in. And I think that foundational piece will even just kind of set a different tone of, okay, so you want to ask me to coffee, but do you realize I don't have time and then when I go to coffee, I got to impress you, I got to buy, do I buy the coffee? Do you buy the coffee? I don't have no money, I got a grant for this. You know, it's a whole, you know, series of questions that I don't know um, that a lot of us use that lens when we're evaluating, you know, hey, nonprofit partner, let's go get coffee. Have either of you seen someone do it differently really well? Like either on the nonprofit side or on the funder side that says, okay, I'm gonna throw this up in the air and see what happens. I mean, I was just in a separate session uh, earlier with a lightning talk from a woman from a funder collaborative group in Louisiana that she co-chairs. And one of the decisions that they made in order to be as responsive as possible with their grant making was to simply take the compliance pieces completely off of their grantees. I don't want a proposal, I don't want a budget, I don't want a report, come to lunch and tell me what you want to do. And they had, she said she had folks like chasing her down the hallway being like, here's my report, don't you want this? And she was like, no, I really don't. That's not what I need you to do. I don't need you to tell me, you know, exactly how much this is cost gonna cost. I wanna know what happens. Try it and see what goes. And, you know, they're still in a very uh, experimental phase to see where that's gonna truly end up after a couple of cycles, but that's a revolution. Right. Yeah, so I have seen it done differently, but I think for very specific reasons, depending. So for, for one example, I, I, we do have a family foundation who is not interested in reports, and they're, they're not interested in a dog and pony show, right? Like they're interested in maybe a phone call once a year. They're wonderful people. But that comes from a place of, of privilege on their end, that they have the money to give away. They're not going to put a, a you know, variety of strings around it, and it comes from a place of trust that we've created with them. So, so sure, we appreciate that. That's great. It's not necessarily engaged philanthropy, but, but trust me, we're going to do really great work with your $25,000 a year, right? Like that's, it's, it's, it's fine. Then we have um, a, another family foundation in town that came to mind when you said that. Um, and they came to us during the recession and said, you have, there's so many requests for your services. What do we do? How can we help you be 
be better at what you're doing. Because at the time, you know, this recession just hit, we had 37 schools on our waiting list for services, which was like, you know, a really horrible thing to, to wake up to every day and go to, go to bed to every night, right? Um, and they said to us, what can we, tell us what we can do, because we don't want you guys to have to have this long list. How do we help you create internal capacity so that you can expand your programming during such a critical time? And we said, we need more individual donors. Like that is, that's where we're at. We need more individual donors. We're still a newer nonprofit organization. We don't have a lot of, um, you know, we don't have a communication person at the time, et cetera. We need more individual donors. They said, okay, here's what we'll do. This is a way that we can help you. We're gonna give you a three-year grant, started at $50,000, then I think it was 30,000 for the next year and 20,000 for the third year. And it's going to be a matching grant for new individual donors. It's gonna, we're gonna match every dollar for dollar for new individual donors. And, and sure enough, we met the match all three years. And it was a really phenomenal opportunity to share a, a, a shared value, right? A collaboration with a funder and a nonprofit. It was really what we needed. They came forward and said, we have financial capacity. What do you need at such a critical time? And helped to, I think, increase our credibility and trust in the community by saying, we have this amazing foundation who's behind us and this is what they want to do. So that that's a way that, that I've seen it work very differently and and was you know because of what happened during those three years we have significantly more donors than than we'd had in the past yeah um you know uh, I, I was just thinking as you were talking i was at um i'm a chair of a board of a small nonprofit, and we've had a, a, a foundation in kalamazoo um be challenging us with a you know give us a grant and then there's a portion of the grant that's actually a challenge and they've been doing this for i don't know five years now six years and, and we're, we're looking at the numbers and we're uh, and they ch challenge us on earned income. And and we're up to 50% of earned income now of the whole revenue pie. And I was like, wow, that actually the relationship has really worked on that front. Um, we've been willing to roll with it and they've been stable and consistent in their practice every year. And I can see the difference in our revenue structure. And it's really cool. Uh, so um, I've been thinking about the relation, like there's a lot of missives in this relationship between like, or I mean, I think to use a more popular term, microaggressions in like the relationship between grant makers and grantees. And, um, you know, last night we were, you know, looking at a professional development grant for equity and inclusion. And it was only gonna be a small little amount of money for us to go, you know, bring some help in. And it was, you know, like $1,200, $2,000, something like that. And um, we looked at the paperwork that needed to be spent to secure this money, and I was thinking, wow, it's going to cost us, you know, two thousand dollars to fill this paperwork out and do all these attachments and things. Um, and um, I've been hearing more of, um, even in our our capacity building um, work at the Johnson Center from our clients, um, organizations stop asking are stopping to ask, not asking certain foundations for funding anymore because they fear they're losing money on those requests. And I just think that's a complicated issue to sort of look at and, and, and I want to, want to know your reaction. But at the same time, one of my rules for grant seekers is don't be tacky. And uh, because, you know, like, I suppose if, whatever you do, if you see a funder at the grocery store, right, don't say you should give us money. Don't ever have that come out of their mouth. And so, um, and I think, you know, there, there's a lot of sort of just not sure, they have nervous, they're not how to handle the relationship, and then they say a lot of really uncomfortable, awkward, tacky things to funders. and. Um, I don't know what we do about that, but do you have any reaction on that? <laughs> I don't know that I have the answer of what we do, but there are certainly some things that I think we have to try on 
um, again, being a sector that is sometimes slow to change and risk averse, maybe you try on a zero to $5,000 grant needs this and a $5,000 to $10 grant needs this. You know, maybe there are some creative ways to look at the cost analysis of a grant for $100,000, maybe needing a more full report and evaluation versus 10 that will impact this smaller nonprofit organization at a neighborhood level um, in a more catalytic way, right? So that $10,000 is probably gonna change the landscape of 100 children's lives, whereas this $100,000 grant will certainly impact a system, right, at a systems level, but there are two totally different outcomes that we're, well, we are usually looking for in those types of grants. So I think it's trying on um, different models for different, you know, it could be levels or layers or types of grants based on the type of grant making that you do. I think that might be an innovative approach to something like that. I would be curious also to think not only about, you know, the level of paperwork more or less, quote unquote, um, as well as what's being asked in each level. Um, I was directed to a blog from Boulay from, I think it was 2015, where he talks about the myth of nonprofit sustainability, that you everyone has to fill out that lovely paragraph about how you're gonna keep the program going once the grant dollars are gone. And we were talking about a particular foundation who included in their grant requirements, like, you have to keep this going for 18 months. In fact, Bridget told me about this one. Um, and like, what? how the heck are you supposed to keep your program going for 18 yeah. months after the grant dollars are gone? Do you understand what nonprofit means? There is no extra money at the end of this line because we spent it already. And Lule was talking about like, oh yeah, I have three different stock versions of my sustainability paragraph, depending on who's asking and for what length of time. Like, why are we even asking these questions? You know the answer already. So why are we both kind of stuck in this mindset of what has to, what protocols we have to follow, what questions we have to ask, when we know that the trends are towards more honesty about what keeps a nonprofit going and what doesn't, more collaboration on how do we evaluate this program. Don't just tell me you wanna know how many Facebook followers I have, because that doesn't mean anything. You know, there's this whole, great big world of potential expertise on both sides of how you can really structure a grant to say that this is this is what X amount of dollars will get you for this long and how and here's what we're gonna see and how we define success together like I don't know there's just so much there or even just you know when there's a request in front of you assuming that they know what they want to measure we don't, we, you know, I think that there are so many programs or services, be it operational support, be it new programs, but they know what they want to measure. Nonprofit executives, leaders, foundation, um, not foundation, but fund development professionals, they have a program in mind sometimes to fit a mold, which unfortunately I, I know and understand that that's kind of the conversation that we have, we're having, but more often it's because they know exactly what the community needs are. And so we should, again, lead with trust and say, okay, you want to measure the number of jobs, great. Maybe you don't want to number the measure, me, hmm, number the measure, measure the number of jobs. You'd like to measure the number of people who 
are now walking into the doors of the Neighborhood Association. So I think that um, there are some questions that can be asked, or again, tr you, you have to try it on. We like one size fits all. We like one grant application because it makes it easier. Um, and we, we sit in making it easier because of the way the system was designed. But I think there are so many ways to solve problems. We're used to solving a problem one way. And I think if we can shift into thinking of how might we solve this problem and look at it differently, we would all um, come to some different solutions. I agree completely. That was like, what I was to see when I was hearing you talk was like, um, it's like assuming that we're doing everything right, the right way right now. And I think that on both ends, what I, I hear in these is there's, there's misunderstandings of just even, I think, how to do the job and what ways that we could do the job better. Um, on both sides that kind of lead us to an unhelpful place and, and an ineffective place. Um, because I, I looked at those nonprofits and say, well, right, I mean, but that seems lousy to, to you say that, well, I can't do any, I can't move beyond the, you know, the timeline of this grant. Like once the grant's done and the cash is gone, well, that's it. You know, you're, well, where's your, you know, where's your, you know, where's your, and why do you have like this boilerplate narrative for sustainability? Right. I mean, where's your diversified funding strategy, right? Where's your obsession on community engagement that leads to um, individual donors and earned income? And I just think we sort of put, you know, so much into these relationships that are not helpful. Because isn't that the stress though? Like, I don't know. I don't know how to diversify my funding stream. I'm one person. You know what I know how to do? I know how to grow food. Like, what, what's the next What's the next step? How do we take, I mean, you're, you're telling me about the crisis in nonprofit leadership all the time. Like, how? where do we go from here? Right. Well, you have to spend money to make money, right? You have to spend money to make money. And that's, it's so true because oftentimes we have these really small grassroots nonprofits and they are making extraordinary impact and they are lifting up voices and they are immersed deep into community and they have a deep understanding of what the needs are. But they are, again, undercapitalized. And so without being, you know, if we're, if we're only investing in program and not investing in human capital, how do they have the opportunity to continue to grow or even stay, stay sustained, right? And then by requiring some of those really small nonprofit organizations to measure their work, like that takes time. And that takes an extraordinary amount of money as well. I, I, I just have so much respect for the foundations and the funders and family foundations, corporate foundations, et cetera, who, who will say, you know, this is the kind of evaluation that we're looking for, and here's the money to do it, right? Like, so much respect for that, and I feel like that that is a, a newer best practice. We're seeing that a lot more. We had a foundation recently that wanted, they, they wanted something specific in our evaluation, and so they just added to the grant award that they gave us because this is a specific thing that they wanted. They knew how much it would cost, and so we're, we're moving forward in that piece. But, but ultimately, too, like, I, so I had a college professor, and he used to say, uh, well, if you can't evaluate it, you didn't do it. Right and yes, totally. I appreciate that, and I and I think that all the time. At the same time, the amount of time and capacity and human capacity that we put into evaluation, what's the point, right? Like oftentimes, putting all of that individual capacity into evaluation is not necessarily furthering our impact. Sometimes it helps us to determine where we need to put capacity. Yes, and oftentimes it's just for the grant or the the, the grant report. And, and, and those are the kinds of situations that oftentimes make feel make grantees feel stretched. And I'm really, I'm stuck on the notion of how do we evaluate in a sector that is so outside the normal measurement scales yes. that we're all used to. Like the the more and more that we talk about systems change, the more we have to figure out how to 
measure a systems change that takes 25 years or more. I mean, there is a huge difference between, okay, I sold 2,500 extra pairs of shoes and because this kid had internet access, she's an engineer or, or she's an artist or she's an airline pilot. Like there is no straight line between that one input and that outcome. Yeah, real quick, quick example on that. Uh, a friend of mine, many of you may know her, Maya Smith is the executive director of the Born This Way Foundation. And her work, that is Lady Gaga's foundation, her work is specifically around kindness and bravery. And they, they focus on teenagers because that is a time, especially with social media, that there's so much online bullying. And there's just, you know, it's such a complicated time to live now and be a teenager, right? And so that is their focus. They're going into high schools, they're doing all this work around kindness. But how do you measure kindness? How do you measure that, right? And frankly, if they were to put the capacity into measuring it, what's the point? What's the ROI on that anyway? Yeah, I always think about like the after school program where somebody expressed love to a kid. And so maybe the after school program grades didn't improve and truancy didn't change, but that love that was given to a kid um, might have changed his or her life. And, and, and I don't know that we know how to measure love exactly. And I drive our evaluators crazy at the Johnson City with that. I mean, if I had a nickel for every time I heard you say that, I could fund a nonprofit. Oh, I'm just saying. <laughs> so we are going to switch over to some audience questions at this point. And we've done a little organizing because a couple of you guys are uh, pulling out some common themes. So we'll start with this one. In sharing get and or giving power to grantees, what are some strategies for grantee inclusion in grant making, strategy design, and decision making? So I think this would be great to hear from both of you on, of like, what have you seen that's worked? What do you want to try out? What have you encountered friction with? Go for it. So one of the things that we are trying on is we embarked on some community listening. So we listen to um, our community's leaders who are leading nonprofit organizations and not your um, larger nonprofit organizations. So there are nonprofit organizations doing major impact in at the neighborhood level um, and also throughout the community. And we really wanted to hear from them and hear what they um, wanted to see in our relationship. And so one of the things that we are going to actively do is keep a feedback loop with that group of leaders to a, um, hold us accountable because I think that we're at a really fertile place in our organization where we realize we have internal work to do um, alongside the community. So we have work to do internally um, while we're working with community. And so we have a feedback loop where we'll engage them for um, different support and not just for, you know, because so often uh, we engage in particular communities of color, like we want ideas, we want ideas, but we don't honor those ideas or we don't pay them for those ideas or we don't recognize that um, that's their brilliance, right? And we often take that and we use that. And so if there's a narrative that we want to share, we ask them. If there is a grant that might impact the community in a way that we have blind spots, we ask them. So we've kind of um, brought together a group of um, very intentionally kind of selected leaders who are impacting uh, communities facing inequities or marginalized communities or from that community um, and they can be in or out of the nonprofit sector really looking at um, how to just keep them engaged and this isn't for stewardship this is for community impact so um, if stewardship com stewardship comes then great but um, we don't even have that discussion around how to raise money so it is it is an intentional tool for um, engagement accountability and feedback yeah I love that I love that probably 
could, can't say anything better than that because it's a brilliant idea. Uh, I love when we are convened by funders with other people who are in our space. Because it is this really, we're all collaborating anyway, right? And we're getting together, you know, monthly for conversations about issues at a systemic level and, and, and how we can better collaborate. But being able to be in that space and have those conversations with our funders present as well, there's so many ideas that can come up with from that. Um, also, recently, uh, one of the larger corporations in our area convened a day, and it was where they brought in experts from all over the country. They funded it, they funded the day, they, they funded all the speakers, and it was speakers who were experts in our space specifically. And it was really cool because it was a way that we all walked away with extensive knowledge on some of the trends that are happening in our subsectors and also um, just so it was it was obvious to all of us how much they in, were investing in us as nonprofits um, and us as leaders and also in the, the work that we are so committed to so seeing that was really neat it's interesting to me that you separated out um, what words you used um, stewardship and, 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 and impact and, and I think you know, we, we've been talking a lot lately and teaching at the Johnson Center about how an obsession with community engagement, the outcome is successful fundraising, that the two go hand in hand. It's hard to, to bifurcate the two, and um, it's interesting to me to hear that. So, One other quick idea on that, if we have time. I, there's a funder um, in here in Michigan, Lansing, they have an executive director's group, and they do site visits all over the state. And they, they fund the day, and they bring people to places where they think are doing good work. So I've seen that before, and that, I, I haven't been a part of it, but I've heard it works well. So Bridget, this one I'll direct to you. So this is, I think, a question around sort of how to calibrate your interactions in the relationship development with a nonprofit. And it sort of talks about the fine line of engagement uh, when approaching funders, but like when is it too much and when is it not enough? And, um, and when is it enough? Wow, that's just a loaded question. Um, I think I used to really struggle with this, especially in my first few years, especially when we were really trying to establish ourselves as a trusted organization in the community that was doing good work. That that was a struggle. Now, um, because I've got these deep relationships and they've been long lasting, it's not as much of a struggle anymore. But I think, you know, I, I think that when when funders and, and grantors and leaders in the community see you as somebody who deeply, deeply cares about your work, that it's not just about the money. It's about being an advocate and showing that, that you show up in spaces and places that are a, about the work that you do is so critical and that reputation will speak for itself. Okay, this one's for you, Janine. Uh, take the mystery out. Walk us through some of the specific hoops you go through as a funder within your system. I need to ask my employer if I can do that. No. <laughs> um, so I would say one is how to apply. So we talked about the application being standard. So that was standard, for example, before I arrived. So to go back and ask the question why, which is what you do when you have new perspective, it's, well, we found that two or three years ago when we reevaluated this, these were the questions we really wanted to know. Okay, so there's a why behind every single thing that before I got there was established years ago. So I have to, and this is just one part, but I have to then decide, do I want to fight the battle of changing the application? Maybe I make it 200 words instead of five, or do I want to fight the battle of internally trying to build relationships that get my organization to realize we're not as diverse as we could be or we need to you know so there are certain things that's just that's just at a staff like basic application level 
So then there are, um, you know, for a community foundation, we have um, funding restrictions. So sometimes we have restricted funds and we have unrestricted funds. The unrestricted funds are our community's endowment. So our community has looked different since the beginning of time. So what is our community's expectation? Our community right now expects that we're working for racial equity. So unfortunately, there may be great projects, programs, organizations that are happening in our community, but if they are not addressing it in a way that says, we recognize that race is the foundation of why we do work in housing, of why we do work in education, of why we do work in childhood hunger, that is a priority that was set by our board of trustees and has funneled somehow all the way down to me, right? So that's our North Star. That is where we need to put all of our community's endowments resources, right? Then there's the restriction of our resources are really limited in terms of unrestricted dollars. So community foundations have a huge impact in their community, but they also have the option to have donors who also can come alongside them with their own impact. So that unrestricted money that you may see in a press release of 200,000 or 5 million for those larger community foundations, that is probably half to a third of what they can actually do. And in, in that 500,000, that could have been half of their unrestricted grant making for an entire year. So the spending policy for um, the foundation world is is a mystery. Like, I don't even understand it. Like, we got like all this money, but we can only spend like 5%. I'm so confused, so confused. So there are restrictions there. Um, and I think there's just- um, Which were made a long time before Exactly that you know I can't beat my head up against the brick wall trying to get our finance guy to say let's change the spending policy. Not a good use of my time, right? So I think that um, there are just filters that they have to go through. So I can say yes, I love this program. I can advocate for it. I can fight for it. I can say this nonprofit is like bomb. They are doing some amazing work. But if one of my community trustees says, but consider, then I need to be in close enough. This is again. I need to be in close enough relationship to you to say, I have someone who may anticipate this question, tell me more about that so that I can advocate for you at that table or through that filter. And then there's, you know, there's just layers of filters where the, the role of decision making becomes subjective. And so I am really advocating with all these different subjects to push through a grant or funding with my own values of you know whatever I believe. Wow, that's amazing. And these are questions that are really amazing actually. Um, so this question I'm going to start with Janine, but I think you've been in this place and you're going to know. So this is about like like. So I'm so passionate about the small nonprofits and the grassroots organizations, and and this question is about access that you know, smaller, maybe emerging organizations have or don't have with funders and sort of what organizations can do to gain access. And what it made me think about, Janine, was a, a partnership that, that we had um, earlier in the year where you had some organizations that were really small. And I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about how you sort of responded to them and then the confusion they had when it was a, a, an investment in their capacity was confusing to them and not it just wasn't a grant. Yes, so we did a partnership with the Johnson Center for Philanthropy um, re really at the very beginning of us realizing that 
um, some of our unrestricted assets were not going into communities of color or specifically going to organizations run by African Americans. And so again, in a community right now where we're having deep conversations about race and training and racial equity, uh, we wanted to try to um, remove some of those barriers to the application process um, and really saw an opportunity to do some capacity building for their organizational leaders. And so we're talking about nonprofits who are uh, what I like to call sometimes side hustle nonprofits. Um, so you got a full-time job, but you're also a nonprofit executive director, but you're the nonprofit executive director that's knocking on the doors from you know 5 to 7 p.m. after you work the 8 to 5 somewhere else. So it's that, that 60, 75 hour a week individual. So really wanted to invest in their human capital and human capacity um, to, to grow in that way. But I think it was, again, we have to learn as funders, we still said, oh, you need capacity. So let's do capacity building. I don't think that, you know, even learning out the gate, we should have said, what do you need? What do you want? How can we support you? How can we show up for you instead of saying, here are the filters, here are the checkpoints, nonprofits need capacity, that's what you need, here's an opportunity scholarship that. It was a great first step, and, and I think that you know you should be proud of whoever you are, whatever you're doing, taking a first step, but you need to have some reflection after that and learn from that, and so I even think that we could have done that better, but again, that group of leaders, we've still engaged them, and we're still in great conversation with them around what, again, their needs are, how we can show up for them because they showed up for us. They let us test, and we called it a pilot, and they said okay, and, and I think that takes courage, and so, um, again, it's a both and reciprocal relationship. But I do think in their minds getting a, um, getting the capacity building versus a grant, which they were just sort of expecting that. But I would say from a capacity building standpoint, that was a good lesson for them too in understanding sort of how the community foundation thinks and what is a sustainable organization and, and that you're just recognizing you're small and you're new and, and you've got to build some of that. And so this is an investment in your long-term success. And, they, and it was good for them to learn that as well. Um, that they got this opportunity that was really a rather great, and they loved it by the end of the opportunity that they understood why it was made to them. Bridget, but you've been in this situation. Yeah, and 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 now, this is interesting, and, and I think that um, probably a lot of funders don't realize that this is always happening, right? But on the weekly, and at least once a week, sometimes more than that, I am either having meetings with, phone calls with, exchanging emails with, so several, several times a week, with some of these small grassroots nonprofits in West Michigan, and they're saying to us, who do I talk to at the Grand Rapids Community? How do I get money from this family foundation? Who do I talk to over here? How do I get how do I get capacity here? Because they've seen that that we are an organization that started from three thousand dollars and have had the opportunity to continue to grow, but they're coming to us and they're asking us because they don't know. They don't know how to get in the door with some of these foundations that they do feel match match with the values of, or the mission of the organization, but but they're asking other nonprofits, right? And asking for help in getting in those doors and, and making those relationships and who do I talk to and you know, okay, avoid this person and, and just go straight to this person, right? Like all of that internal knowledge, it's really important. And it's, I feel, you know, that it's one of my jobs to share that because other people shared it with me. And, and to be able to share that, okay, this foundation in particular, this is the kind of grant that you can that you can ask for and feel safe asking for that, right? Because they don't want to be offensive, they don't want to be tacky, right? Exactly. They don't want to be offensive. Yeah, yeah. and so that's the, like a lot of, especially some of these nonprofits that are that are very small and doing amazing, amazing work. It is hard to navigate the funder field. It really is. I just want to add to that, um, you know, something that is very powerful that Bridget said is I spend my time talking to them. So you know what. Uh, 
a great opportunity to pair those organizations who again have a shared value of liberation why couldn't we pair you know those organizations more often in a mentoring capacity and I think that the great thing about this um, kind of pilot that we did was really to to say I see you like small nonprofits I see value in you and I want you to thrive so I I had a conversation at the conference earlier today and I don't think it was a popular um, point but it was I don't know that I'm bought into dismantling the system of power between philanthropy and nonprofits, right? But I'm committed to finding the workaround. So there's a, a way to bypass that. So these small nonprofits may still have to jump through some hoops, right? But how can I help them get ready to do that? How can I equip them for success? So some of the systems that are designed again it's not popular i don't know that we can dismantle them and so there's work that i'm going to do that we can't see in my lifetime and work that we'll do that i can't see in my lifetime what i can see is some very clear on-ramps and some bypasses it's like the bypass tray on the printer you can't put it in drawer one but you got to put it in this tray and then you get what you want though right you get what you want printed and so if that means i gotta walk a nonprofit. If I got to walk a nonprofit through how to use the technology, you know, I, I am the type of grandmaker who will do that, you know, and may, that may be my side hustle from, you know, 7 to 9 p.m. or something like that. But I'm committed to doing that because I don't know that we can continue talking about how we got to do this for nonprofits and we got to do that until we just basically unite and say, well, we got to get it done. So how are we going to get it done? Let's find a new solution. So I'd be curious, rather quickly from both of you, like, what do you think the ideal relationship looks like? Like, Bridget, you mentioned that with the particular family foundation you have who is only interested in, like, here you go, I know you guys are doing great work. Here's your check, love it, have fun. But does is that engaged philanthropy? I'd love you to say more about that, and I'd love to need to hear more about from you about what you'd like the stewardship to look like on you. like. What's kind of the right level that, in your experience, we should be aiming for? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I think uh, the the smartest, most engaged philanthropist that we're working with is that same family foundation who came to us in the recession and said, "What do you need?" They are they are they have been walking with us alongside of us through our entire growth, and that can, that question continues to come up. And and you know we visit with them, they come with to us their family foundation. So we've got some relationships with their trustees and with their staff, but they don't have that. There's not a lot of the power dynamics exist, but they're not uncomfortable, right? It's it's um, very much a collaboration and it's shared goals. And when we meet a goal, they're they're just as happy, right? Like it's, it's something that we're doing together. Um, but even now, you know, as we continue to grow, they want to grow with us. So what our grant awards have looked like have grown over the years. They want to get actively engaged. They have one of their trustees who is one of our leadership volunteers and sits on a committee. So there's that, that active engagement, which comes with a, with a millennial generation, right? Like our millennial generation is much more engaged. People want to be hands-on and they want um, leadership in a variety of ways, not just making a grant award. And so having those kinds of relationships at all different levels and being able to relate to each generation, especially in the family foundations, I think is super important. But having that shared understanding, you know, Janine in, in a community foundation, you guys have access 
access, I think, to a lot more uh, data and, and, and just access to much more than we do in our specific one nonprofit organization, right? And so it, even sharing that information, so when we work together, learning from, from what it is that you know about the sector that we're working in or, the, or the, the issue that we're addressing, being able to have that shared information I think is so important, not, not holding it because as a funder you have it, but being able to share it to you. And, and, and then lastly, that corporation who convened a large group of us who are all working specifically in the nutrition and hunger space for an entire day and they brought in these experts from all over the world and it was an extraordinary day. And we walked away with a variety of new collaborations that we hadn't had in the past. That, that to me was an example of really engaged smart philanthropy. Um, so I, I would like to see the sector be um, more diverse, more people of color in not just the sector, but in leadership positions, in program officer and above or anywhere, communications positions. Because I think that what we need is our brilliance. We need our network. We need our communication. We need our lived experience at the table. Um, and I think we really need the perspective of people of color who um, sometimes still live what we fund. And, and so a very um, quick story, I went home and talked to my aunt and she talked to me about how she had lost 25 pounds and she was so excited about that. And it turns out it was a program that we funded. Right, so I don't think, and, and I, I love our allies and I love a lot of our white brothers and sisters in the work, but do you go home and hear your family say, I need daycare, I can't go to work. Like that's my life, like I go home and I, I, I live it still to this day. Um, a lot of times I think that that perspective doesn't show up and so we don't have the people at the table to help solve the problems. I'm not saying we have to do it, um, alone, but there is great partnership and great value in being intentional about who we put into these spaces to, again, subjectively make these decisions and build these relationships. So I think that to be more engaged in philanthropy and impact it um, in an equitable way, we need more people of color at the table. That was a powerful conversation, I thought. It really was. And, you know, we actually turned the uh, microphones off at the end of that and had a really great conversation in the room afterwards as well. They were awfully shy, that audience. They did not want to be on the air. <laughs> we uh, made the offer, but no one took us up on it. We just want to say a, uh, a quick thank you again to EPIP for all your support, especially uh, Storm Gray for making all of this happen, and that we really had a great time. We hope you enjoyed the conversation, too. And we want to thank our guests, uh, Janine Couch from the Grand Rapids Community Foundation and Bridget Clark Whitney from Kids Food Basket. They are two rising stars in philanthropy, and it was an honor to have them as guests on our show. Thank you for joining us for this live podcast, and if you want to join the conversation, We'd really love to hear from you. What are you thinking about? What are the challenges you're facing? And, and what are the ways that current events, politics, and philanthropy are colliding in your life? To get in touch with us, you can reach out at fieldnotes at gvsu.edu.